Well, good morning. Good morning. It was my fault for not putting on my microphone while I was sitting down there. Steve's doing an outstanding job. Thank you, Steve. What motivates people to change their lives for the better? As a dentist, I used to ponder this. How do you promote good dental health? How do you uh, encourage people to reduce sugar intake, to reduce the amount of acid attacks on their teeth? How do you encourage people to brush their teeth to get rid of all the bacteria that's going to mess up their gums? But actually, everyone's asking questions like this about the whole of life. How do you really make change uh, for the better? How do you change people's attitudes towards food? How do you help people to make better uh, health food choices uh, in, a, in a culture of growing obesity and heart disease? We've had an announcement of a radical shake-up of the welfare system this past week. I mean, how do you encourage able-bodied people to get back to work rather than living off state benefits? Should I just swap microphones here? I'll take yours, yeah. Change microphones. How do you change a culture that misuses alcohol? How do you stop binge drinking, drunkenness, and alcohol-related violence in our society? How do you change the drug culture that ruins lives, destroys responsibility, and fuels uh, crime in our society? How do you deal with a society where the rate of sexually transmitted diseases is just going through the roof? Um, how do you change generations of dysfunctional families uh, with child pregnancies and growing abortion rates with broken homes how do you change a culture of, of cheating and corruption in sport the betting corruption in cricket the claims you can buy votes from FIFA delegates to get the World Cup people using performance enhancing drugs Christians, like many non-Christians in the world today, are asking these questions. Uh, we're concerned about these issues. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been studying the book of Titus, and we're seeing how the Apostle Paul has been teaching, uh, well, encouraging Titus to teach the Christians there about ethics, about the way that they live their lives, what the Bible calls doing what is good, or a godly life. And we've seen... How practical godliness uh, is. It's, it has to do with about not getting drunk, about being self-controlled with our appetites, about being faithful in our sexual relationships, about being good workers, about integrity, about trustworthiness, about a lot of the issues that society is desperately trying to get a handle on itself. And the question today is, what motivates such a life for a Christian? And before we kind of go into this, let me ask you a, a personal question. You can keep the answer to yourself right now. But what motivates the way you live your life? 
Really, what is it that motivates the way you're living your life right now? Are you basically just trying to abide by the laws of the land? Uh, Maybe it's the family values that you grew up with. Maybe you just look around you and fit in with your friends, uh, with the norms of your friendship groups, and you just do what's acceptable according to them. Or maybe you've got a bunch of religious rules. Maybe you believe that if you keep certain rules and requirements and practices, then God will be pleased with you, and that's what you want. Maybe it's just doing what feels good. Maybe it's just what will give you the most pleasure or bring you the most comfort for the longest period of time. There's a lot of hedonists in our culture. There's, there's the, uh, the, the going all-out hedonism that sort of wants to die with a beautiful body and the more mature middle-class hedonism that just wants to maximize the pleasure and comfort for the longest period of time that you can get away with. Well, what is it that motivates you? What's, what's motivating the way you live your life right now? Well, come, let's look and see what motivates a Christian life. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, you'll find this on page 1199, 1199. I'm so excited that we finally got to these verses. 1199, Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now these are so good. Let's soak in these again. Let me read it again because it was a quick reading, wasn't it? You've you've just noticed where it is on the page. So let's, let's concentrate on these words now. Back to verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is God's word. Over the past few weeks, we've been thinking about this analogy of our lives being like a picture frame. But today we've come to look at the picture. Today we've come to look at the great work of art. We're looking at the picture of beauty and salvation and hope, the best picture that this world could ever see or look or examine. And the focal point of that picture is a person, Jesus Christ. 
Do you see that? The focal point of that picture is Jesus. Look at verse 13. He is described here as our great God and Savior. The Christian life is centered on this man of history, Jesus of Nazareth. That's why we sing about him. That's what we're reading about. That's why we pray to him. This is our focus of our our lives as Christian believers. We're focusing on the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He's alive. We live for him. We're waiting for him. He is the Messiah King promised in the Jewish scriptures. We've examined this eyewitness record of the life of Jesus. We, we can see that actually this real flesh and blood man is God. This is our claim. If you're visiting, you're not a Christian. I'm so glad you're here. This is, this is what we're claiming. You can know the real God, the God who made you. God came into time and space and history as a real flesh and blood man. And you can come to know the God who made you, the God who sustains your life, by looking at this Jesus, by looking at, his, uh, the, at, at God's word. And when you do that, when you look at Jesus, you'll see a person who is totally captivating. You'll find a person like you've never met in your life before, a person like no other in history. His life and his character, his, his selfless life, his humble, loving, gracious, sinless life stands peerless, unique in the whole of human history. His teaching, simple, profound, sane, insightful, transforming, life-changing, God-revealing. His miracles, extraordinary, compassionate, revelatory. No person can compare to this person. Have you looked at Jesus? Have you seen his beauty? This is what we're about as Christians. We're the frame that holds up this beautiful picture of Jesus to the world. John Stott, in his commentary, just lays out the the beautiful structure of these verses. It was hard to beat. So I'm borrowing it. Thank you, Uncle John. Stop. As you notice, as we read that, did you notice a repeated phrase, the word appearing? These verses speak of the two comings of Christ. Verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Verse 13, we're waiting for the glorious appearing. And in both instances, it has to do with salvation, doesn't it? Verse 11, the grace of God that brings salvation. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that word appearing has a sense of something hidden or concealed. And that that, that then kind of bursts into full view. It it is revealed like, like the sun coming up. Uh, breaking forth its beams of golden light over the horizon. You know it's there. You're waiting in the freezing cold of the morning. Have you ever been up to watch the sunrise? The darkness 
and, and the cold, and then suddenly the sun bursts up in a glorious way. Well, that's what we're talking about. The sun of righteousness has appeared. The glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The appearing of grace that has happened in the first century. The appearing of glory that is coming, that we're awaiting for. The two great moments of history. So significant was his first coming that we uh, split our dates on it, don't we? That there was a time before Christ. And there was a time after Christ in the year of our Lord. It continues. And we're awaiting a future day. He was promised to come uh, for centuries before and he came in fulfillment of scripture. He promised he would come again. And though 2,000 years have passed, uh, our hope is undimmed and is certain that he will come again. He will come visibly. He will come personally. It will be unmistakable in human history. He will raise the dead. He will gather his saved people to himself. He will be the judge on the final day of judgment. He will wrap up human history and we will enter fully into the new heavens and the new earth. And the Christian lives his life between these two great moments of history. Grace has appeared. Glory will appear. And our lives are anchored to these two great moments. And that is what motivates the Christian life of godliness. That's what it's about. Let's think about these two appearings then. The appearing of grace in verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, God has always been gracious. You can read the Old Testament and you'll see uh, many scriptures that evidence God's amazing grace being shown to his people. Ever since our first parents uh, rebelled and rejected God, then humanity has been living in rebellion and sin against God. And over and over again, despite the fact that we, in a sense, deserve nothing but to be snuffed out, God has treated humanity with grace and mercy. He's held back. That judgment that our sin deserves. But there was a moment in history where God's grace appeared visibly and personally. And it was in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. I love it that already Christmas decorations are going up. It is never too early to celebrate Christmas. And so we've got a Christmas text today. It's exciting, isn't it? We've got a Christmas text. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's grace came personally in the coming of Jesus Christ. This is a, a text about the incarnation. It is the appearing of saving grace, as we're going to think about in a few weeks. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angels cry today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And if you're visiting or you're considering Christianity, let me tell you, Christianity is not about making yourself moral. It's not a DIY religion of human improvement. It starts with saving grace in the coming of Jesus Christ. We need a Savior. We need a rescuer. We can't do anything to rescue or save ourselves. 
Just like the Chilean miners trapped 2,000 feet underground. Do you know what? There was nothing they could do to save themselves. There was no hope in themselves. They were running out of tuna. They were rationing out the tuna. The tuna was running out. And they would perish. Sealed, entombed, encased. 2,000 feet underground. There was no hope in themselves. The only hope, if it was going to come, was going to come from above. The only hope would come is if rescuers would come and dig down. Well, that's what the Christian message is saying. There's no hope in ourselves. We're sinners. We're rebels. We have a holy God. There's no hope in ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We're enslaved, entombed in our sin. We need a savior. And the incredible message of the Christian faith is that the grace of God has appeared in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. Saving grace. And it is that saving grace that teaches us godliness. Verse 12. It, that grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. See, what motivates a changed life for a Christian? And we've got all those terrible societal problems and people are scratching their heads. What's what's really going to help people change there? And there's a mixture of penalties and, well, there's the stick and the carrot that we use to try and motivate people to change, isn't it? But what, what motivates the Christian? Is it the same? Is it rules? Is it laws? Is it legalism? No. No, it's not. It's quite clear here, isn't it? It is grace that motivates the Christian to change. It is the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. An obedient Christian life does not come from fear of what we must do, but it comes out of faith of what Jesus has already done. For us. That's where the changed life springs from. Only grace has the power to change our hearts. Only grace will give us willing hearts to pursue godliness. But we do need to say no. See, when we get grace, what it'll do. It'll help bring change in our lives. But you know, change will happen with daily choices. We're going to come and think about this at the end. Daily choices. Daily choices to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to say yes to self-control. Say yes to live an upright life. To say yes to godliness. An ongoing lesson of grace. If we want to live changed lives, we need to be people who meditate on this amazing salvation and this amazing Savior and and, and grab hold of, by faith, this amazing grace. And out of that, we'll be able to make daily choices to say no and yes to godliness. Let's think about the second appearing, the appearing of glory, verses 13 to 14. 
So in this present moment, we're, we're, we're making these daily choices to say no to ungodliness and yes to self-control and godliness. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Why the blessed hope? Why does it say the blessed hope? Well, because his coming will complete our salvation. His coming will perfect our salvation. What has freshly struck me this week as I've meditated on this passage is that salvation is about both comings. The salvation package is about the two comings of Christ, not just one. Just think about those miners in Chile again. They had 17 days of not sure whether there was any hope for them. But on the 17th day, a bore tube went into the exact chamber where they were. Now, at one level, you could say on day 17, they were saved, can't you? They were saved. No longer rations of tuna. They now had a little pipe, and they could have lots of other good food. Uh, They could have been kept down there for years if people kept putting the food in at the top, right? They were saved. They had communication with the outside world. They, they, they even got to watch some uh, soccer, I think, on TV. Or football, we call it in Britain, don't we? See, I've, I've still got to cross the Atlantic. Soccer. Football. And yet, the truth was, it took another six weeks, didn't it? Before they were truly saved. It took another six weeks before they saw the perfection of their salvation, the completion of their salvation, as they got into that tiny little tube and got extracted and came out with the great cheering, the great delight, the great joy of the reunion with those that they loved. I think that's a helpful picture of these two comings of Christ. It's inadequate. Well, let's think about this appearing, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Look at verse 14. Who is this Savior? Jesus Christ. What has Jesus Christ done for us? Verse 14. Who gave himself. He gave himself for us. To redeem us from all wickedness. See, if we are going to understand salvation, we need to understand our greatest problem is our sin and our wickedness. God hates our sin. Sin destroys lives. It degrades our humanity. We're made in the image of God, and yet sin mars and distorts what we were meant to be. Because of sin, the Bible says, actually... Although we're capable of many good things, there is still a fundamental crookedness in our hearts. There's a depravity in our thinking. Are you not shocked at some of the things that you can think? Has it ever really hit you how evil your heart can be? We can have twisted passions. We can be all bent out of shape because of sin. And we're like drug addicts. We're we're, we're addicted to sin. 
addicted to and enslaved by our selfishness and our sin. Do you know what? When we put our trust in Christ, when we put our trust in this Savior, He redeems us from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin. That's what He achieved at the cross. If you trust Christ today, the penalty of your sin will be wiped away. You'll be forgiven. You'll be, and, and, and also, the power of sin is broken. You don't have to be enslaved to this sin anymore. But you know what? We are still struggling with this sin in the now, aren't we? We're still struggling with this sinful nature, this flesh, that still desires what is ugly and sinful. It's still with us. And you know what? On that future day, when Christ comes... We will be saved from the presence of sin and wickedness completely. This is why it's the blessed hope. You know, as you go on in your Christian life, my experience is I, 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 just, I just see how increasingly wicked and sinful my heart is. How I hate the sin I see in my heart. I don't hate it as much as I should, but I'm growing to hate it. And the blessed hope of that day is that actually he's going to redeem me from all wickedness. All wickedness will be removed from my heart. All wickedness will be removed from your heart. All wickedness will be removed from this world. What a day. What a day. Free totally and utterly from the presence of sin, from the slavery of sin. What a day that will be. Now, if that's what salvation is, if we look back to the cross, uh, look to the appearing of grace, and then we look forward to the appearing of glory, and know what, that this is the total package of salvation, does this not motivate us to live saved lives now? This is the great plan of salvation, to free us from our sin. This is where we're going. The complete eradication of sin and wickedness. Is that not the very thing that motivates us now to live a saved life, to live a godly life now? Is there anything more tragic than hearing stories of alcoholics who have so trashed their livers that they are their death's door and they receive this incredible possibility of a liver transplant and they uh, get detoxed and they get a new liver, new hope. And then, I think this was true of George Best, wasn't it? He went back out and started drinking again. Don't we get it? Right? We have been saved from the penalty of sin. From the power of sin. We're going to be saved from the presence of sin. So, in a sense... How how incongruous, how bizarre to, to carry on living as if uh, sin was a great option now. If we understand this salvation, if we understand the two comings of Christ, then it motivates us to live a godly life now. Secondly, it goes on there, verse 14, who gave himself for us, not only to redeem us from all wickedness, but to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This language of redemption and purification is straight out of the book of Exodus that we studied uh, not that long ago. 
They were freed out of being slaves in Egypt. And they were bought and brought to Sinai to meet with God, to worship God. And God says to them, you will be my treasured possession. You, you will be a kingdom of priests. You'll be a holy nation. He had bought them and brought them to be his purified, holy people. And when we see how tragic it is to be enslaved to sin, to see the dirtiness of our sin, to see the moral filth of our sin, and to understand that he's washed us clean, he's forgiven our sins, he's he's clothed us in his righteousness, he's brought us into his family, he's given us a new family likeness, and a, a, a new desire to delight to do good and be morally clean. On that day, on the second coming of Christ, do you know what? All sinful thoughts will be completely eradicated. We will not even be considering how to do evil or sin. We will be totally zealous to do good. It will be our only ever thought or inclination. How can we worship God? How can we do good? That will be the only thing that will occur to us. That's where we're heading. How foolish to have a bath, to put on your best clothes, and to go out into a dirty, muddy field and roll in the mud. You observe someone doing that, what are you thinking? Cuckoo. Something's not right. Well, that's the point, isn't it? If we understand the salvation, (laughs) if we understand what Christ has achieved for us in the appearing of grace, what will be completed at the appearing of glory... Does this not motivate us to live a completely different, changed life now? This grace. And why the delay? Why the gap? Why the gap between the appearing of glory and the, uh, uh, and the appearing of grace? Why has there been this 2,000 years? Because this salvation that was accomplished, Christ sends his disciples out because others need to be brought in. People need to hear this good news. They need to hear this wonderful news how they can be freed from their slavery to sin and brought home safe to God, that their past can be washed away, they can be made brand new on the inside out. There is hope for real change now. And this delay is to enable us to be such a people to do that because he's still gathering in a people for his very own. And when the full number are gathered in, he'll come back to pick them all up. I was reading in this morning in Hebrews 9, verse 28. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So if we're his people, blood-bought by his, by his amazing grace, waiting to be gathered to him, then why live today as if we're not his people? Why live as if this world is all that there is when we know the blessed hope of what is to come? It's Remembrance Day, isn't it? It was good to remember the incredible sacrifice of those uh, who fought 
in the, in the two world wars who continue to fight for our freedom. And every time we come and once a month we come to the communion table, we're being asked to remember this great act of sacrifice. Do you see it? It's so personal in verse 14. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. He put his body in our place. It was his body that was broken. It was his body that was beaten. It was his body that was crucified. It was his blood that was shed. For us. That's what motivates the life of godliness today. It is the grace and the glory of Christ. And the truth is, where that lands for us each day, we're faced with choices, aren't we? Every day we're faced with a bunch of choices. Are we going to look at the life of Jesus and see what godliness is? Are we going to repent of our sin? Are we going to trust him as, uh, as our savior? Are we going to enter fully into grabbing hold of this saving grace? Are we going to look to the future and realize the glory of what's coming, our blessed hope? And then are we going to make choices day by day to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions? And to say yes to godliness. Now, can I ask you particularly, what does that mean for you today? What does it mean for you today? What is it that you feel the Spirit of God is saying to you that you must say no to today? That you must say no to this week? What ungodliness? What worldly passions? How can we say we're Christians? How can we say we've understood the gospel and yet be engaged in slandering other people? Gossiping, maligning, tearing down. I mean, that's like the person who's showered and got his best clothes on is rolling in the mud. How can we say we're Christians and that we've been saved and blood-bought by Christ and then go out on to the nightclub dressed for a, a night of action, getting drunk, taking drugs? How, how do you live like that? You can't live like that and actually really be a Christian, can you? Well, you can't do it for very long. If you've really understood the grace of God? How, how is it that we can say we're Christians and yet in our business practice actually be ripping people off? I, I've drive past the King's Theatre. There, there's a program on, on Enron. And Ken Lay, who was the head of Enron, was supposedly uh, so he's a son of a Baptist pastor, grew up in a church. Uh, he says he didn't know anything of the uh, terrible deals going on under him. And... Uh, 
yet very shady deals were being done. It, it doesn't fit, does it? It doesn't fit a Christian profession. Oh, my friends, look at the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the coming glory that is ours. Understand what salvation has been bought for us. And let's live in the light of it. Let's seek grace to live godly lives. Let's pray.